0: Welcome to an installment of the digital environmental governance interview series. Support for this work was provided by the Network for the Digital Economy and the Environment, a collaboration of the Yale Center for Industrial Ecology, the Environmental Law Institute, and the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the University of California, Berkeley. The network is supported through funding from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: With this idea of the precision trap, what I mean is that when there is an over-optimistic belief in the accuracy and the reliability of those new technologies, the farmer and other actors do not observe and corroborate and check on things anymore as much as they did in the past. So then there is the problem that if the technology is not so precise as it is claimed to be, that diseases and other problems are... Spotted too late in the game.
0: Welcome. My name is Aiden Smith and I'm a research fellow at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the University of California, Berkeley. You're listening to the second interview of a three-part interview series where we'll be exploring the effects of digitalization on environmental governance. I use environmental governance as a lens for understanding the actors involved in environmental decision-making. This lens also brings focus to the ways that environmental problems are framed and acted upon and whose interests are prioritized and whose are marginalized. Digital approaches have become more and more prevalent as a means of addressing the growing concerns of environmental degradation and climate change. I had the pleasure of speaking with three social scientists who are examining these new modes of digital environmental governance. Through these conversations, key themes emerge that can help guide the public and decision makers as they think about the role of technology in their lives and in their work. So with that, let's continue with the second interview. Welcome, I'm so excited to be joined today by Anna Fisser, Anna is an associate professor in agrarian studies at the International Institute of Social Studies. His research focuses on digital technologies within agriculture and development, large and small scale farming and the financialization of agriculture, and alternative food networks and rural movements. Anna is an anthropologist by training, having earned his PhD from Rotbout University Nijmegen in the Netherlands, Anna joins us today to talk about his most recent research on precision agriculture in the Netherlands, the US, Canada, and the UK. Precision agriculture goes by several other names, including Smart Farming, Agriculture 4.0, and Digital Agriculture. The title of his published article is Imprecision Farming, Examining the Inaccuracy and Risks of Digital Agriculture, which was published in the Journal of Rural Studies. In this conversation, we'll be speaking about how digital technologies are being deployed on the farm and to what end. His work speaks to questions of digitalization and environmental governance and the challenges and risks associated with the increased prevalence of algorithms within agriculture and environmental spaces more broadly. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So I wanted to begin by having you describe in your own words, what is your research about and you know, what is the, the scope, the focus of the research and, and the primary research
1: question that you're looking to address? Yeah, so um, I have different sets of projects around digitalization of agriculture. But my main um, fascination is yeah, how this whole digitalization automation and the rise of artificial intelligence this whole set of technologies how they change the world so one big question is on the intersection of environmental change climate change or as people increasingly argue climate crisis or climate destruction maybe even and yeah uh, digitalization and how those two things relate so I'm very fascinated by, yeah, to what extent can this process of digitalization and the rise of the internet of things, how can they help us as humanity to cope with this crisis, particularly in agriculture, but that is an entry point to the environment at large. Great. And could you describe what
0: is precision agriculture and you know, how does it work? what problem is it intended to solve advocates of precision agriculture you know they they have this vision of what it can do this digital transformation what it what it does for farming and so i'd love for you to just describe a little bit what it is and what is the problem it's meant to solve
1: yeah so precision agriculture under its different names is um, by proponents is put forward as the way to solve the main problems of conventional industrial uh, agriculture So it promises to go away from the very industrialized, like standardized way of agriculture with monocropping, where fields are, or livestock are treated in the same way, in a standard way. So we have big stretches of land with corn and they all get the same fertilizer, the same, they spread with the same uh, amount of liters or gallons of chemicals, etc. And then precision farming comes in precision agriculture it has the promise that we go away from that model that you can be much more accurate by being data driven by generating a lot of data on crops you can uh, give exactly the needed amounts of fertilizer of uh, chemicals so the idea is that the whole agriculture system becomes way more efficient and that also uh, the environmental downsides become much less because you avoid over-application of fertilizers, chemicals, etc. And like water and energy and... Water, energy, yeah. So it brought all those, those aspects of agriculture as a resource-intensive endeavor. Uh, precision agriculture yeah, argues that by being much more precise, we can reduce that resource intensity at least that's that's the claim Mm -hmm. yeah and what are the what are the technologies
0: or devices that go into precision agriculture
1: yeah so i would say that are a, a few core elements of precision agriculture one has been the rise of sensors which can be attached to combines, tractors, put in the soil, be mounted on uh, milk robots, so sensors which collect data about all aspects of agriculture. Then, secondly, you have the algorithms, the artificial intelligence, which then kind of analyzes this data uh, gathered by sensors and then subsequently gives advice to the farmer or even when it's a highly automated farm, directly kind of instructs robots to act, to do certain applications in the field, for example. So these are these core elements of the Internet of Things, as we see it also in, say, manufacturing industry. But in addition, I think a key element is that it's all, because it's outside in nature, in the fields, the That GPS is also a core element. So it's all also about the location of those sensors, about the location of the data. That's very important for being precise. And then subsequently, this set of tools can be used in all kinds of combinations in uh, milk robots that analyze everything about about the cow while milking the cow, or combined with harvest uh, crops like grain or corn, but at the same time, harvest uh, huge amounts of data would immediately go into the cloud.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Great, yeah, thanks for, thanks for laying that
0: context, that background out there. Um, could you describe who the main actors or forces that are driving this trend towards precision agriculture, and you know, where, where is it being deployed and implemented?
1: Yeah, so first about the actors, at first instance, it seems like a very complicated field or a kind of very diverse field with lots of new startups, new names popping up every year. But if you look beyond that, like what other companies will really acquire those startups when, once they start to, to have some impact, uh, get some size, then basically we see three sets of actors. So first is the agtech manufacturing industry. So the traditional big manufacturers of tractors and combines like, uh, like John Deere, like Agco, those big companies, also the companies in milk robots. That's one set. So they acquired various startups and uh, yeah, are making this transition from just equipment to cloud-based tractors and combines with lots of sensors on it. The second set of actors is also from agribusiness at large. Those are the chemical companies, yeah? Especially, I mean, you have the fertilizer companies, but most of all those providing, yeah, pesticides, herbicides. So the buyers with Monsanto and the Syngenta and those kinds of companies, they even invest more money than the first group. And then thirdly, more recently, we see also, yeah, the big tech firms from outside agriculture coming in, the, the big names we know, like IBM, like Google, Microsoft, they certainly also obtain startups, start developing new apps for agriculture, et cetera. So basically, huge uh, big corporate interest from different sides all uh, kind of jump on, on this. And then geographically, where, where is this being applied? Yeah, so basically precision agriculture originated from the U.S. Like in the 90s, it started developing, but it was still an infant industry. And so the U.S. is still a prime actor and a prime country where it is being applied with Silicon Valley and the Midwest. And then uh, we see also the EU, especially the West, the EU like the Netherlands, Germany, the U.K., France are big players. And then, aside from that, these are the core areas, yeah, with Australia and Canada. Then we see also spots, yeah, like hubs, smaller hubs of digital agriculture in the, in the global south or emerging economies. So we see some of the big farms in, in Brazil and Argentina, uh, the same in the Eastern Europe and Russia and Ukraine. And in a very different way, we see it more targeted at smallholders via apps, etc. We see it also happening in Asia and Africa, more recently. Yeah. So it's basically almost uh, across the world, but really most uh, far advanced. Yeah, in the West. Gotcha. And, uh, and did you say that the target
0: or the focus is? primarily small holder farms or large scale or does it kind of depend on where where in the world you're looking in terms of like farm size or types of farms that are being pulled into this this transformation
1: yeah it depends a bit on how you evaluate it but if you take money as an indicator it's always quite relevant where most money goes In terms of investment in this industry, it's definitely the big farms, yeah, the mid-sized and big farms like in the Midwest, in in, in the US, like uh, some parts of California, like Northern France, the Netherlands, and the the smallholders get way less investment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was looking recently and saw that in 2020, there was an article about how the University of California Merced joined the University of Pennsylvania, Purdue University and the University of Florida in forming a research center on the internet of things for precision agriculture. And then I read an article that in 2022, UC Davis now also has a minor in precision agriculture. And yeah, they, they write on their website that precision agriculture is the latest farming concept that optimizes fertilizer, pesticide, and water use while minimizing the envir- environmental concerns. So it seems a lot of the universities in California are picking up on this trend. And so, yeah, I was curious, do you have any insights into the U.S. or California in terms of how, how digital technologies are penetrating these areas?
1: Yeah, we see that in the 1990s when it started and in the, the past 20, 30 years, the main focus has been on the much bigger farms in the Midwest, like the, the, the core staple crop um, areas with corn and soy and wheat. So the, this has been the, the, the focus and is still the, the main focus, and you see also um, we can probably discuss that later that most of the technologies are also oriented at those crops but at the same time in the recent years we see also some expansion into uh, other crops like fruits and uh, vegetables yeah california comes in the netherlands with a lot of vegetables and we see that currently also quite a quite a bit of 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 money in silicon valley goes to things like the development and design of robots to pick uh, strawberries for example and other fruits yeah so uh, that's definitely uh, picking up in the past few years yeah
0: interesting so i would love to get and then thinking kind of about the role of the farmer in all of this, obviously very important actor in this in this whole system, I wanted to get your sense, again, driving at sort of what is the impulse, what is the motivation for the use of digital technologies in farming. One of the narratives I've come across has a lot to do with climate change and the challenges that climate change poses to farmers. So I kinda wanna, I wanna get your reaction to this narrative. I'll lay it out for you. And yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. So uh, the narrative goes like this, You know, due to climate change, there's a greater level of volatility with weather and with environmental conditions. And so while local knowledge and expertise held by the farmers was adequate in the past, it's now no longer really sufficient to meet the moment. In addition, population growth, market volatility, and crop epidemics compound the instability wrought by climate change and will produce their own shocks. And so digital technologies allow farmers to meet this increased volatility with more precise, accurate, and reliable data. And I'm curious to hear, how do you you respond to that that narrative and these claims, does it,
1: does it bring up anything for you in your own, in your own research? Um, yeah, I think this is definitely a narrative which is very widespread amongst proponents and policymakers. And I think it's problematic in various ways. First, it, yeah, really Describes the farmer, frames the farmer as the problem for development and, and adaptation of agriculture. One CEO of one of the big tech companies said, like, uh, yeah, the whole the key bottleneck in digital agriculture is the farmer. Yeah, so not very pleasing view of the of the farmer. But then I think there is. If you look into the history of farming, there has been lots of moments in history where farmers have adapted to changing circumstances. Before climate change, there could be population growth, there could be droughts, other disasters. And agriculture has often adapted and farmers, I think, show a lot of ingenuity and and improvisation. Secondly, I think that what's problematic about this view is that where farmers have a hard time adapting this is also for to a large extent actually caused by earlier technologies not by farming styles inherently so we see that a lot of farmers have become so indebted to finance new uh, new bigger bigger machines bigger tractors this makes it hard for them to yeah to to experience with other things because so um in-depth because of earlier technologies they bought. And it makes adaptation difficult, yeah? It becomes very path-dependent. They are kind of very much uh, determined by their stables, their barns, their tractors, where, with all those investments ingrained in it. So that's the second problem. And the third, it kind of poses a, a too optimistic view of technology, in my view. So it's really posed as very accurate, reliable, and also kind of flexible at the same time. And um, during my research, it was uh, really intriguing for me to find that a lot of those technologies, certainly in the view of the farmers, were not so reliable as they are claimed to be by their proponents. So there are quite a lot of inaccuracies. There is a lot of talk about sub-inch accuracy, and and then when you look at it that doesn't materialize in practice yeah so maybe there is a sensor which can uh, sense or the the gps can be as precise as half a centimeter or something but then when you have implements which have a width of 12 uh, meter then yeah what can you do with that data which is so precise or the the subsequently the, the the algorithm doesn't use that precision there are errors introduced so this accuracy I think is uh, one problem and secondly in terms of the technology and overestimation of what it can do the problem is um, can uh, technology keep up with the changes in the environment with climate change is it catching up is it keeping up with the pace of climate change that's still a big question mark yeah
0: Right, right. Presumably the algorithms need to be fed some data set to function. And so I think in a a previous conversation, you had mentioned that the normal or the baseline that these algorithms are working from is a moving target. And yeah, I'm curious if you have any other reflections on that or is there a sort of power and human ingenuity to, to adapt. So yeah, I'm curious, can you speak to the, the data sets that actually drive the algorithms that are so core to precision farming?
1: Yeah, so there is one problem with adapting to climate change which is based on uh, this new data-driven digital models. Is that to analyze or even to predict you need a historical data set which is useful for the coming year the present year and and i think that's a problem so when for example um, the software by monsanto was introduced it mostly had just two years of data yeah two years of history which even according to a lot of experts is too little, you would need at least five five years, yeah, to have a bit of an average because you have so many fluctuations in agriculture year on year, yeah? So that's, uh, and that uh, then compares with farmers, which may be in business for 30 years, 40 years, yeah? And we will know all those fluctuations and keep that maybe intuitively or have scratched it down in the notebooks, yeah? And then with climate change, it becomes even more problematic that data solutions are always the magical tool to solve this issue of adaptation. Because you can wonder yeah, even if you have like five years of data, is it still very helpful when climate change constantly kind of changes the normal? Yeah, moving into new normal, historical data sets become super quickly outdated. We see that with. The weather, yeah, and the IPCC reports which constantly are running behind the reality. Uh, climate change constantly surprises even those researchers. So, yeah, that same problem definitely is haunting uh, precision agriculture. And during um, conversations I had, for example, with scientists in climate mathematics, uh, quite a new field, for example, at Cornell University, what I find fascinating that in terms of, say, just weather prediction, yeah, just the normal weather we see on the news, that in the past few years, technology, the models hardly have made any progress. Yeah? So when you go to a week or 10 days ahead, we hardly know if you go beyond 10 days, the models can hardly say anything about whether it's even going to rain or not, let's, let's say. We have any precision of the amounts of it, yeah? And it seems almost impossible to develop further. So the same might be with climate change, yeah? The idea is that technology gets better and better, so we're getting closer and closer through the truth, we're getting more and more precise, but that assumes that reality is a kind of fixed state, but we see that there is an acceleration of change in the environment with climate change. So it's really a, a race between the technology and climate change, and with climate change and not being a linear process, but accelerating, even those talks about technological development, which is accelerating, even that poses the question, does it go quick enough? Yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you for that.
0: I want to start shifting to a conversation around what this all looks like on the ground. And so we've been talking about this already a little bit, but I wanted to pull out a a part from your your paper where you discuss this conversation between social scientists and the engineers and computer scientists who are developing the algorithms. You write that the critical literature on big data has historically tended to focus on human technology interactions within online spaces, such as social media and, and the internet and that this literature has critiqued the claims of objectivity and accuracy, which are commonly associated with big data, artificial intelligence and algorithms. And then you note that now there's this growing interest in studying these claims in offline environments, such as the farm, where claims of objectivity and accuracy become probably, I would guess, even more tenuous. And so could you explain or describe some of the challenges that offline spaces and environments pose to digital technologies? What are some of the factors that affect the accuracy of these tools on the farm?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important topic because a lot of researchers, they take our online realities and the problems we face there or the possibilities, take that a bit as a starting point because 95% or more of the literature on digitalization has focused on that in the past years. But the problem, although there are also problems of inaccuracy, that problem is much less than when we go off screen, so to say, because when you have human behavior on the internet, It basically is sent to the algorithm in quite a Uh, pre-structured way yeah so we by just typing we send in very quite clear messages and and moving with our mouse it's all kind of translated by the computer in in zeros and ones and it's all getting into the system in quite a structured way unmediated by the, the rest of the environment when we go into agriculture and into the environment but also in smart cities then we see that a lot of other aspects of the context suddenly start to uh, intervene, yeah, to affect the quality of the data. Like in cities, you might not have everywhere the right reception because of big buildings, etc. Going into tunnels, if you would track human behavior, mobility behavior, if you go into nature, it even gets more difficult because uh, plants, they act in sometimes unpredictable way. Animals start also to react sometimes on sensors. They destroy them, or I heard uh, stories of farms. We say, like, when I put a camera on a cow, sometimes they start behaving differently so it's not uh, unaffected the data you gather and you see the weather you see that sensors very quickly got destroyed or they lose their accuracy because of storm wind etc and to give an example of research we're doing at our institute a colleague they did also environmental data collection and research around it in the amazon to monitor forest, but then they had drones and thought that was a great idea to monitor pollution, etc. But these drones, they had a very hard task, even flying in the Amazon, yeah, with all the, the tropical heat, et cetera. So the batteries very quickly degraded and the, the, the drones had even difficulty to get back to the loading station, let alone gather useful and accurate, accurate actionable data, yeah? And the same we see in agriculture, but also in environment widely. There have been experiments with mounting sensors on whales, and then those sensors themselves become the problem because by being put on the whales, they cause infections. So either the project fails or the, the animals start to become ill. So there are a lot of problems which I think we all have to take into account. When studying digitalization out there in the wild, so to say, right, right, and the, these tools
0: maybe have a tendency to treat the farm as a laboratory, and it, maybe that analog is or that comparison, that metaphor is not uh, not appropriate in this in this instance. I was going to ask you a question, sort of about the the possibilities and limitations of using digital technologies, because you know, every time we think up a solution for a problem, that often it's very tightly linked to how we frame the problem, right? And so I was curious to hear, yeah, how, how you see this approach, you know, what does it make visible and what does it obscure? Does it, you know, just distract from root causes in, in, in some instances? Where does it draw our attention to? And then maybe what do you see as the other, in terms of precarity for farmers? What are some of the other root causes of, you know, hardship or, or struggle?
1: Yes, the idea of the the quick fix with technology kind of makes invisible the big power dimensions in agriculture and the increasingly precarious position of the farmer in this whole system. And then by giving them new tools, there there is this idea, okay, the farmer is empowered and is on top of things. But when we take a closer look, they often get increasingly indebted, and even when It's technology which is supposedly introduced for environmental purposes, yeah? Like in livestock farming, you had low emission floors in in cow barns with valves with open and closed, would separate the urine from the rest of the manure and then drastically reduce the, the nitrogen emissions, for example, yeah? So farmers put in a lot of money to install those things, They were basically tested in the kind of lab situations you referred to earlier, like ideal situations, where it were relatively clean or well-maintained, etc. And you see that in reality that by no means the environmental benefits are reached in practice because there is the weather, there is dirt, so those installations very quickly start to malfunction. Uh, Farmers don't have the time to do the necessary repairs. So, very quickly, the proclaimed benefits and accuracy drop. And then the second problem is so, one is that they don't get the results that they promised to be, and then often the farmer is blamed for that. So, for example, if you see with milk robots, you see that they are quite accurate. In, in, For, say, 98% of the farmers, it's quite a high, high uh, number. There are some problems in the beginning for cows uh, to get adapted, but then for most farmers, it works. They're always in each barn, there are some cows which cannot deal with, with those robots, and then uh, they have just to be brought to the slaughter. Yeah, so they... Don't fit. They are not uniform enough. The cows, yeah, to fit the robot. But then there are also cases where it can become quite more dramatic that the whole herd doesn't want to go in into the milk robot. And then there are farmers where it worked in the beginning, and then suddenly after some months the cows don't want to get into the milk robot anymore. So then very quickly diseases start, infection starts, so the farmer really gets in, in trouble. And then there are several cases, for example, in the Netherlands, but I guess in other locations just as well. The problem is the farmer wants compensation or wants the, the manufacturer of the robots to, to address this issue, either repair it, that it might be that there is electricity leaking or there are other problems inside the robot, uh, but then uh, the AgTech manufacturer of this technology says like, um, no, it's, it's probably your problem. Yeah, it's, it's the cows the problem or uh, bad management of the farmer. And then the contracts the farmer has to sign when he buys this equipment, they are almost a centimeter thick. So basically, the farmer has to prove that all other aspects like the weather, the animals, the farming style, the, the buildings cannot cause this problem and that by elimination it could not be anything else than the robot. Yeah, that burden of proof is impossible with so many factors. So the Actac manufacturers get away from it and farmers, they get in huge trouble sometimes. Uh, I know one case, a farmer, they was at the fringe of bankruptcy and, and his mother was afraid he would hang himself. So this is an illustration of inaccuracy when it combines with very unequal power relations that can be really um, dramatic for for the farmers.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And I would love to maybe a little bit later dig more into those power relationships. Um, I did want to ask you because this is this is a an interesting concept that comes up in your work is that you, you look at how the farmer actually plays a very important role in these tools. You know, they play a very important role in calibration, corroboration, interpreting what the tools are, are telling them. And so, yeah, the user of these tools is so important into actually how effective they they truly are. And so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the role of the farmer in employing this technology. What are some of the instances or examples that you you can draw on there?
1: Yeah. So here, again, there is quite a a contrast between the rhetoric of those sensors, the technologies being super precise, and the reality which I found that farmers have to make them precise to really make them work. So there is quite a lot of labor from the side of the farmer needed. So, yeah, one thing is, say, if you have a sensor which measures the yields, and the yield of, say, a combine, the yield per, per per square meter, yeah? And then you can nicely get at the end of, of the, the harvest an overview, like what are the the high-yielding parts of the field, what are the lower-yielding parts of the field, and that helps the next year, and you can adapt your application of fertilizer, et cetera. So in theory, that's great data. But then those sensors, they have to be calibrated, and so that has to be done by the, the farmer. So that requires some work and experience. But then also, once the farmer is driving, he kind of has to, to keep an eye on, do I get the data which I get? Is, does that seem logical or not? Because one farmer mentioned, for example, that suddenly when he started driving a bit more quickly, suddenly the yield per square meter went up, yeah? It slowed down and it went down. So that shouldn't be like that so there seems to be a a bug in the system and you see also that for example with harvesting potatoes or sugar beets etc it could be that suddenly there's a lot of tear yeah a lot of mud etc and then the system thinks the sensor thinks that it's just a lot of potatoes yeah and all those instances the farmers has to keep an eye on it and think like is this logical or not does this make sense so it's not just driving putting on the switch on and it's all done. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, corroboration in the field, observation, critical thinking based on experience. Yeah.
0: Great. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, so I want to let me shift to some of the more conceptual parts of, of your, your paper and of your work. You argue that an over-reliance on big data and algorithms. And you've done a fantastic job kind of explaining all the different contingencies and factors that we should be thinking about when using these technologies and being cautious around the conclusions we draw from these technologies. And you do write that an over-reliance on big data and algorithms can lead to what you call a precision trap. And so I would love for you to explain, what, what do you mean by a quote unquote precision trap and why
1: why they present a potentially growing problem yeah so with this idea of the precision trap what i mean is that when there is an, an over optimistic belief in the accuracy and the reliability of those new uh, technologies then there is a tendency to lay back yeah as a farmer or a farm consultant like okay, uh, this technology is so great, it does its job and I, I don't have to go in the field once a week as I did before. I don't have to check on the cows like I did. So there is a big risk that by having such a, a strong belief in the accuracy of this technology, the farmer and other actors do not observe and corroborate and check on things anymore as much as they did in the past. Yeah, like when a farmer was... Milking cows himself or herself, then, yeah, daily you see every cow and you spot things, diseases, strange behavior, etc. So, yeah, the promise of this milk robot is that you don't have to go in, in the barn every morning, every evening anymore. So, then there is the danger that the farmer hardly goes in the barn anymore. He or she has totally to rely on the data and the printouts on, on, on the cows. So then there is the problem that if the technology is not so precise as it is claimed to be, that diseases and other problems are spotted too late in the game. And there might be a lot of negative knock-on effects in terms of diseases, in terms of, of harvest, which are lost. So I think that's a big problem. And especially this problem when the technology also claims to predict things. Yeah, So there is new... Technologies, new sensors are sometimes based on, on satellites which make images of the crops during the time it's growing. Yeah? And then it claims to detect diseases before they can be seen by the farmer. Yeah? So then he or she can already start spraying much earlier and arguably prevent a much bigger outbreak. But yeah, when the algorithm is wrong, it could be that you just spray additional times and when there is an error, there might not be a danger of a, a disease at all, yeah? So you're just polluting the environment, making additional cost. And it's, of course, much worse when you don't see a problem a disease, yeah? You think, okay, I don't have to go in the field anymore. Uh, it's just spotted by the algorithm, by the sensors. So there is a big risk of failures with a kind of different side effects.
0: Yeah, I think I think you in your paper write that Your work is a little bit unique in that a lot of previous work in this area sort of takes as a given that these tools are precise and correct me if I'm wrong, but your work challenges that assumption that these tools are actually accurate, right? So this is kind of how it maybe deviates or is unique in in the literature because other scholars take that as a given and then draw conclusions about what that means for society. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think one problem of the technology is, of course, with other authors have stressed, like when there is a lot of precise information, maybe about the farm by other actors, the kind of big brother surveillance kind of trend, which is also definitely happening, then the precision can be the, the problem, yeah, the, the amount of data gathered, etc. But I think that is an amounting problem, but that's still often something still for the the future, because a lot of those technologies are not as precise as they claim to be. So the bigger problem, in my view, is not that it's this all-knowing technology, which is also scary, but the problem is that we think it's an all-knowing technology, and it isn't, yeah? So it camouflages a lot of potential landmines on the way, yeah? Because we think it's so super sophisticated.
0: Right, and... and In your paper, you write that it's not, it's not so much that we should have the expectation that it is a perfect tool. It's more the humility or this knowledge that the tool has, has some utility, but it's important, as you say, with like this idea of the precision trap, it's just important to know the limitations of the tool. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not a Luddite in the sense that I'm against those technologies. No, I I definitely see the value uh, in various ways. But I think it will become quite dangerous if we have this excessive belief in things it can do when it doesn't. Yeah, We saw that also in other terrains, Yeah, like in the airplane industry with the Boeings, where a new system was introduced. And they thought it's so accurate, so we hardly have to train the pilots. Yeah? They don't have to know what this new system is about, or they got just a very quick on-screen instruction. And that appeared to be very dangerous, yeah, with crashes or near crashes. So uh, again, this uh, overestimation of technology is a big risk.
0: Yeah, and you also, uh, the other big conceptual piece I found in your work was a slightly different term. You, You talk about this precision divide. And I think that that speaks a lot to the biases that are inherent within the technologies themselves. And so I would love if you could describe what do you mean by precision divide? How does it arise? And what might be some of the repercussions of
1: this divide? Yeah, so I think it is important, first of all, to distinguish this from the digital divide. So the digital divide is often like, okay, farmers don't have the knowledge to operate a computer, or they don't have the money to to buy new technologies. So you get a a big divide between farmers who have the money and knowledge to jump on the the new technologies and others who don't. What we mean with the precision divide is that even if the farmer has the money and and the knowledge, et et cetera, there may be divides which are more inherent in the technologies and exclude people. And that is more on the level of the algorithms and that harks back a bit to this idea that for effective algorithms, for effective devices, we need data. Yeah, we need a set of data, historical set of data. And then we see that, as we mentioned earlier on, most of the technologies have focused on the Midwest, yeah, on the core crops, the staple crops. So they have been trained on those crops. And farmers will then try to use these technologies. In uh, say uh, California for other crops, yeah, for vegetables, or in the Netherlands, then suddenly they run into problems, not because they have a lower level of knowledge, because they have less money, no, because this algorithm has not been trained on, on those circumstances, yeah. So, and then by definition, it's much less precise. So, there was an onion farmer, for example. Which stated, yeah, those algorithms which I use, these technologies, they are a disaster in this cultivation. So he got very disappointed. And you see that also in flowers and various other crops. So we see that. Those algorithms tend to concentrate on the most widespread uh, crops because that's the most profitable market for them. And so it then creates a bigger and bigger divide between farmers who have relatively precise technologies like in wheat and in corn, and those would are in other crops or in different environments using the same technologies. And they had to get off like a garbage out of their algorithms to overstate it a little bit. But yeah, where it becomes quite problematic.
0: Yeah. What is this self reinforcing nature? Like, why does it get
1: worse, you know, as these algorithms learn from more and more data? Yeah, so there's a tendency of self-reinforcing trend. Yeah, because they were first introduced in those few crops, then most data is gathered there. And then it gets even more precise and more farmers draw in within those crops. So it's more and more years of data are piling up. So uh, whereas for other crops, they are getting further and further behind. Yeah, with the farmers who are cultivating them. It's a bit like if you have a search engine of Google and a new startup tries to come with a search engine. Yeah, Google has been trained for all those years with billions of users, and then it's it's crowding out all those other algorithms. Yeah.
0: And is there, in terms of the precision divide, do you find that the algorithms also privilege certain types of farming practices, like permaculture, integrated crop, uh, farming, is that also a point where you see difference and divergence?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this precision divide is not only about crops, but also about the farming system. So when you're doing just corn and alternating with another uh, crop, that's something which can quite easily be captured by the algorithm. But if you're doing a lot of crop rotations, It's more difficult to build up this data set for each crop, yeah? So that's already a problem. And secondly, I also did interviews with farmers who are in in regenerative agriculture who try to have lots of different crops in rows on their field. Then the problem is that the data sometimes got influenced by crops nearby. It's difficult to collect data for each crop because you have uh, needs uh, almost a different machine and a different software package for for all those different crops. Then you have different machines in addition to it. So this system of digital agriculture, as it is now, is very much focused and kind of reinforcing this idea of monocropping. And when you want to do much more experimental other styles of farming, uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to do so. Not impossible, but uh, very difficult. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Thinking about digital technologies, another idea that really comes up in lots of different areas is this idea of real time, algorithmically driven environmental decision making. And for many, this has a large appeal, right? But, but then others argue that this kind of automated decision-making in its speed can foreclose political debates. It can also maybe have other unforeseen ramifications. And so this idea of real time through algorithms, what do you make of it? And what do you think is important to consider or highlight when we think about the speed at which these decisions are made?
1: Yeah, this is very appealing part at first instance, obviously, and it has also a lot of benefits, but also at the same time, a lot of, of risk, I would say, because paraphrasing one of the farmer sources, he said like, okay, we have this new algorithm, this new technology we use in the field, which generates a lot of, of data, just real time in a split seconds. It sets a lot of useful data but sends also a lot of errors at the same time with lightning speed, yeah? So there is also a risk that because it's so real-time, you have hardly any time to check it as a farmer. And that also the the errors very quickly send and go undetected, yeah? So that's also a big problem. And this example was just one, one device, yeah? Measuring, for example, the yields. But once digital agriculture evolves further and you have different sets of real-time operating technologies on the farm and they start even interacting with each other which is the ideal with visions of the internet of things yeah then those errors could kind of interact with each other and result in a kind of cascading of of errors with quite dramatic fallouts and and, uh, and failures for the farm so yeah possibilities but also risks there Right. And this
0: gets back to what you were talking about in terms of the precision trap. And by having it be real time, this circumvents the corroboration that a farmer might engage in. So this idea of real time is, I think, very much linked with your your thinking on the precision trap. Um, Could you you did talk with us uh, a little bit before, but I think it's so critical to the discussion that digitalization so often reshapes power dynamics, relationships, dependencies between different actors. And so I'm curious, what do you see forming? Are there new actors brought into this space? I know you touched on some before and I just, but I would love to hear a little bit more about, yeah, these power dynamics, questions of access to data, ownership of data. You know, where do you see these tensions
1: crop up (laughs) to no pun intended but (laughs) yeah 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 there is definitely what the management of the farm which was traditionally was yeah firmly in the hand of the farmer and over the years that has already a bit devolved. but we see with this digitalization that increasingly there is a kind of off-farm choreography, as, as one researcher called it, yeah, that more and more actors from big tech, from the ag tech manufacturers, they start to look at the data collected by the farmers, start to have an influence on it. If you look at the example of combines, John Deere combines, increasingly they're digitally locked. So a farmer normally had the agency to repair his own combines and tractors in the field, etc. Now, that's impossible and you first need a kind of code to unlock the system otherwise you cannot do anything yeah you can maybe still change a tire but that's about it so um, it's a huge dependency imagine you're out there and on the prairies and the help desk is closed and your harvest has to get in because the rain is coming yeah or a farmer who had a constant beep In his combine and he could not solve it because it was all digitally locked and um, he was just uh, sitting there um, with this annoying noise. So that's definitely outsiders getting more control over the farmer. And that also gets a kind of transnational dimension. Yeah, You see that in, for example, Africa, new platforms, new apps are being introduced. But it's often private equity, Western investors, which is behind this. So you see that increasingly, yeah, value generated on the farm is extracted out by outsiders and even on a global level, yeah, away from, uh, say, developing countries to financial centers, which, yeah, it's also quite a troubling tendency, which is very different from the view of those farmers like leapfrogging and making progress and development because of those tools. Right,
0: right. Yeah, I think one of the common narratives of development practice and theory is that information communications technologies enable greater connectivity, right? Um, And that connectivity as a concept is very much tied with this idea of development, but so often Increased connectivity can also produce relationships where there are opportunities for extraction and exploitation of value, like you said. So as we wrap up, I I did want to ask you, you know, through your research, have you arrived at any conclusions or otherwise about like how can digital technologies, how might they be better designed and deployed in our lives? And have you come across any exciting developments in the field? Is there, is there a movement towards a more equitable, just, or sensible use
1: of, of these technologies? Luckily, there is. I mean, it's still a bit under the radar, but we see movements where precision agriculture is really designed and modified by farmers themselves in alliances with engineers or software designers or some farmers who came in from a job in, say, in an ICT firm, started farming and take those skills with them. So what we see in the U.S., especially in the Northeast and in, in New England, but also some spots in the Midwest and also in, for example, France, we see movements of farmers with built really exciting new coalitions with designers and ICT specialists. And based on the idea of open source agricultural technologies, they start to to innovate kind of bottom up and build tools which are much more adapted to farming styles, which are uh, kind of ignored by the mainstream corporate technology. So we see farmers say in in New England, who have pasture-based livestock operations or agroecological operations, who build tools in a kind of hackathons with a group of farmers and ICT specialists on the farm and design new uh, tools, both in software, in terms of the hardware, and then put that online within those movements, uh, movements like FarmHack and GOAT, which is a gathering for open agriculture technologies. In France, you have uh, Atelier Pesson, the workshop of the peasant, so to say, of the farmer. And these are movements which are gaining more and more members and build up yeah, a repository of open-source technologies which farmers can use and also can modify. Yeah? So I think this is an encouraging technological uh, development, and it's encouraging both in terms of more equity for the farmer and in terms of allowing technologies to be more adapted to new farming styles, more sustainable uh, farming styles. Yeah? Do you see your work serving that
0: audience or like who are you hoping to influence with this this research
1: Yeah I ideally hope to reach various audiences the interesting thing is that this paper on precision agriculture more than than any other paper I've written has also been read by people in more in technological sciences which is encouraging I think and also for example some people in agro robotics who got fascinated by this so it would be great if some of the designers get more aware of the risks. But I also would like to read some some policymakers, but also the farmers' movements themselves, which are now emerging. I think some of the farmers are not aware how quick some of those developments in, in kind of enclosing those data sets of farmers and the very quick expansion of some of those big tech farms in, in this area Quite a number of farmers are not yet aware of that. So one of my ambitions is also to try to to reach that audience to make them aware of both what are the threats and risks, but also what are some of the possibilities in terms of alternative models of building technologies for agriculture.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great to hear that you have a focus on policymakers as well, because I could see if you're developing a policy or a program, it's really important to be aware of the limitations and the opportunities of, of, of these technologies. So I, I see your work being very helpful and really providing a lot of key insights for that audience as well. Are there any other projects that you are working on uh, that you'd like to mention, or w- what do you see as kind of the future of this work, or are you focusing on, on other things
1: next? Yes, yeah, some of my previous work has been an open arable farming. Now, I, my recent project is more in horticulture, greenhouse-based horticulture, and there is also a lot of data there. And in terms of climate adaptation, there is also this tendency, okay, maybe we just give up uh, uh, adapting, we just build greenhouses and indoor farms and kind of shut us off agriculture off from the environment yeah so we create our own internal environment and whether that is in the u.s. close to to new york or whether it's in dubai in in 40 uh, degrees celsius we just built our indoor farm so there is this idea of total controllability of agriculture, which I think is also uh, problematic. So this is one area I'm also trying to look into now. First in the Netherlands, in the greenhouse clusters, and the second one is also a recent project, which is in Africa and Ghana, looking at how more app-based digitalization uh, targeted at smallholders, how that is uh, that is unfolding.
0: Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I could see. Uh, as we mentioned you know there's this drive within precision agriculture to basically treat the farm like a lab and so yeah let's let's put into a a greenhouse and create that laboratory environment so that our tools can work and uh, it'll be very interesting to see if many of the same conclusions in your work on precision agriculture still apply or how that story unfolds well thank you so much you've been incredibly generous with your time and i want to thank you for discussing your research with us uh, it's a fascinating to look at how digital technologies are being deployed in environmental spaces. And I think it raises a lot of interesting questions around environmental governance and the role of digital tools in environmental governance. So there's a lot to learn from your work. And again, I want to thank you. And I, for one,
1: look forward to your, your future research. Thank you. It was an uh, honor and a pleasure to join this conversation.